Blog Talk Radio. Greetings and welcome to Mount Olympus. I am Hercules Invictus, and today on Hercules and the Space Gods, I'm proud to bring you Nick Curto presents the Disclosure Network. Greetings, Nick Curto. How are you today, sir? Uh, never better, Hercules. Uh, I can't believe we're this close to the big holidays coming right up yes. here. That, uh, oh, I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden, wham, here we are. <laughs> no Christmas cards written yet, although I'm doing a little bit of shopping. I'm proud to tell you that. Awesome. And 2022 is right around the corner. Right around the corner. <laughs> oh, it's breathing down our necks. Absolutely. <laughs> Boy, this was quite a quite a year, as you know, and 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 this last month has just been, uh, what shall I say, uh, like times ten, times ten of what I I normally think of as a, a progressive time from one week to the next, and here we are, almost ready for, uh, you know, the new year. It just it's it's an amazing year. What a roller coaster ride. What a roller coaster. Most certainly. Well, I'm glad we're both still here, and I'm really looking forward to your show tonight. Sounds fascinating. Well, thank you, Hercules. I think we've got one dynamite show for tonight. I am very, very happy with what we've got going on here and our, our very special, very special guest. Again, this is this program is Nick Curdo Presents uh, the Disclosure Network, and I'm Nick Curdo co-founder and director of Disclosure Network New York, uh, and your host for this live podcast. Uh, DNNY is a grassroots organization now celebrating our 20th year. I can't believe it's been that long, but it has, uh, providing two meetings per month throughout the year in Manhattan. We focus on cutting-edge UFO ET issues of, of all kinds, paranormal phenomenon, and that is also an awesome subject, as well as many other important and related subjects from a wide variety of areas and sources as we go deep into these exciting and sometimes totally misunderstood subjects that the mainstream press will not talk about or ever discuss. Our members, DNN why members do intensive investigative research into these cutting-edge areas and topics and then share that information with our group at our meetings as well as on uh, the Internet, on YouTube. Uh, Now, currently, we're doing only Zoom meetings, uh, and we do that twice a month until COVID-19 or whatever that is, is gone. And a, a venue that we have been using for such a long time is reopened in the West Village of New York City. Our Zoom meetings uh, for our members only are held the first and third uh, Wednesdays of each month. Uh, and it's going to go on throughout 2022. Um, if you'd like to get membership information, some details, I can do that for you. Uh, you can just email me. I'm going to give you my email address so to get a pencil and a piece of paper ready. I'll give you that right now. My email address is N-I-C-K-N-Y-N-Y-1. And that's the numeral one, not O-N-E, but the numeral one at gmail.com. Again, N-I-C-K-N-Y-N-Y-1 at gmail.com. And I'll be very happy to send out that membership information to to you. Now, our motto uh, right from day one is, quote, connecting the dots to seek truth, unquote. 
Now, we have available to our DNNY members worldwide our DNNY News Blast email service focusing on the important topics of special interest to our group. And uh, you also can visit our website, www.dnny.info. And uh, I'm going to repeat that also, dnny.info. By becoming a member, you will be connected worldwide with our members. And believe me, they are some of the best uh, deep researchers I have ever had the pleasure of working with. Also, you'll be getting our meeting announcements, cutting-edge news, and special invitations to our special events. And that goes on uh, all year long. So there's a lot to the group, and I I hope you consider joining. Okay, with that said, let's get right to it. Our featured guest on this live podcast tonight is my friend and colleague, Bruce Pearson. Welcome, sir. Well, thank you for having me, Nick. Thank you. Welcome to Hercules Tucson. Thanks for having me here tonight. I appreciate it. Oh, I've been really looking forward very much to this interview. Uh, Bruce, as you well know, your bio, if I were to read it, we would be doing the whole, the whole podcast, <laughs> the entire 60 minutes with your bio. But can you give us perhaps a minute or so just touching on some of the, 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 the high points of your, of your uh, bio, of, of things that you've done in your career so far? Well, thank you for the, the kind words. I, you know, um, it's it's. I, I consider myself above all else to have been very, very fortunate, uh, blessed, if you will, uh, to have had the career and the life experiences that I have. Uh, we all face challenges, of course, and uh, we've all had the bumps in the roads. I think that that's part of life. But um, I have been supremely fortunate in what I've been able to achieve, what I've seen, where, excuse me, where I've gone. Um, I'm a native of western New Jersey, grew up in a very rural area of Hunterdon County. Um, I went to a great family, great parents, great uh, brother and two sisters. Uh, went to college uh, for my undergraduate degree in eastern New Mexico. And uh, that was... Uh, one of the most fortunate things I could ever hope to do. And we'll talk about that a little bit later if you'd like. But in my uh, long career, uh, actually I kid around a lot. I, I said I, you know, I graduated high school with the Rocky Mountains. I'm so old anymore. But next year is 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 an anniversary. You're talking about your 20 years on on the program, and I applaud you for that. Um, actually started a live broadcast. To New Zealand in 1999, we were we started actually with um, AT&T phone lines, which was incredibly expensive, and then we started to go over to dial up and so on. And so the progression in network broadcasting um, is very gratifying. I can remember many years being laughed at, going, "You're you're doing what on on the internet?" Uh, but once iHeartRadio, I think, was the tipping point. Took you know took uh, podcasting and live streaming as well as all the other broadcasters under their wing, um, that changed everything. And now it's you know it's the fastest growing segment of, of media. That being said, a little bit back to my background, uh, 
next year marks my 50th year in broadcasting. I started very early, actually, uh, and actually launched the FM radio station at our high school in Flemington, which still runs WCBS, WCBHS FM. And um, that really was technically the beginning of my broadcast career. I've worked at many radio stations. Um, run, uh, I've hosted a number of shows over the years. Uh, currently, I'm on hiatus from doing live shows on a regular basis. But I uh, um, have a degree also in broadcast engineering as well as radio, television, and uh, broadcast journalism. Um, I have a first-class FCC license, which is really meaningless today, but uh, that was hard to achieve. Uh, got that in Denver. That's where I got my second degree. And uh, worked in feature films for a number of years. Uh, worked in the highest levels of network sports for about 12 years. I uh, did what is my passion for a span of over 17 years focused on it, as well as other things uh, in the area of documentary and advocacy documentary production, investigative reporting, and was able to travel all over the world literally for that. Um, my partner in that company that produced those uh, was a senior pilot for Continental Airlines, now United. He just retired this year. Uh, so we did a lot of aviation-related documentaries, including a groundbreaking uh, documentary on the Concorde in you know, the SST, in cockpit behind the scenes, uh, first commercial flight in the Soviet Union under Glasnost, and on and on and on. Um, but I did a lot of corporate work also, uh, including a whole lot uh, with a dozen major pharmaceutical companies, so from national sales meetings to product launches to FDA hearings. Um, so got a lot of behind-the-scenes uh, work with that. Um, I've always pursued a number of things. I have a number of other interests, uh, and I've been very fortunate to be able to pursue those uh, interests. I am a, a pilot. I flew hot air balloons commercially for oh, 18, year, 18 and a half years, um, and I uh, have fixed-wing rotor, um, food-powered parachutes, owned a couple planes, uh, have a helicopter rating. Um, so. I have that interest. I also spent uh, 20 years in the Coast Guard Reserve, and I'm, that's one of the things I'm most proud of. Um, and uh, was involved as a public affairs specialist uh, in a lot of major events that happened uh, in this country, uh, which I was drawn into because of that position. I was also uh, a rescue boat crewman in uh, Coxon, so I did a lot of SARS work, search and rescue, the, the meat and potatoes of the Coast Guard. And I feel very fortunate to have been a part of that organization. Uh, like I said, that's the thing I'm really most proud of. Uh, the network sports thing was pretty amazing. Uh, I was very much hands-on and in the fray of it. I was on the first high-definition sports trucks for National Mobile Television, uh, out of New York, and uh, so anybody ever saw the, the semi-sports truck sitting on the, the sidewalk of the by Madison Square Garden, that was my truck for five years, uh, so I did all the local teams, the Knicks and Nets, Rangers, Devils, Islanders, uh, Mets and Yankees, all their home games for not every every show, but pretty much every show for about five years. And then I moved on and ran the Fox Sports Field Shop for North America and handled all the equipment and uh, scheduling and type of things for the trucks for Fox Sports in, in 
U.S. and Canada for about uh, five and a half years. Uh, done a number of engineering-related uh, positions in the broadcast industry. Uh, ran a jumbotron truck, uh, which is the big daylight screens, uh, you know, 45-foot screen. Um, I was the video producer for the BBC World Tour Walking with Dinosaurs when it came out of Australia and, and spent three years in the United States. That was the live event that went from, you know, one venue to another with uh, 27 tractor trailer loads of live dinosaurs and equipment, and it was quite an amazing show. Done, uh, ran the uplink truck for MTV at Woodstock 2. So I could go on for hours. I have been very, very fortunate. But I think in the most humble sense, because it's not about me, I consider myself lucky. I am a very hard worker. I continue to get on my face on some airtime on a lot of the uh, cable shows. I just uh, appeared on an interview as a segment in the Travel Channel show, The Alaska Triangle. It aired about two months ago. We actually shot the segment up in Alaska over uh, the tundra west of Denali the summer before last, and they finally aired the segment for the premiere for this season. Um, my first non-PBS, because my first television job was in Full-time was in a PBS station at uh, in Portales, New Mexico, KNW-TV3. I also worked with KFDW-TV12 out of Amarillo, uh, their translator and uh, Channel 12 affiliate in Clovis. I worked at a number of radio stations. I'm a musician. Uh, I'm an avid uh, motorcyclist. I have a Honda Valkyrie. I was out on it this afternoon, as a matter of fact. And I'm a car guy. I got a couple of street rods, and I've always been involved in uh, street rods and custom cars and stuff. Uh, but uh, my music goes back to fifth grade, and I can continually play. Actually, I was just asked to be in another band. I played all kinds of music over my career, so met a lot of people, you know, through music and, and uh, that aspect of my life. So enough about me. It's not. It's not about me. But I hope that that brings some credibility. I'm very humble in the fact that it's you know not everybody gets these opportunities to travel all over the world but i'm also i think um responsible as a journalist to respect the breadth and depth of what i've observed in in the most um as possible you know the most objective way as possible what i mean by that is um I've got to see, I have had the opportunity to see, you know, hands-on what many parts of this world are like and also the humanity of the commonality that we share as human beings. And uh, it's given me a perspective that I think it's important that I never forget that um, you have a responsibility, if you have any kind of integrity and conscience, um, to be fair-minded and to be honest in, to the best you can as a biased human being. We're all biased, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just an acknowledgement of our upbringing, our experiences, and so forth. Um, to try to be fair and even-handed with any issue. Uh, that does not mean that I have not taken an advocacy uh, position on many uh, of the stories I've covered, 
Um, I covered the American agriculture movement down in the 70s in New Mexico, West Texas, and what happened to American farmers and got involved with uh, farm aid because of that. And the exploitation, in my mind, of farmers being encouraged to go into debt and buy more land and more equipment when interest rates were 17% for everything that they purchased. Many, many stories. Um, but I've investigated from my very early years as a, a an anchorman at the CBS affiliate in, uh, part-time in, in Roswell, and when I was approached to, about that, we could talk about that. Uh, but I've also been in, on ghost hunters and ghost detectives and ghost soldiers and um, my ghost story on A&E uh, and on camera and have worked with a, a number of other shows that I've been on. Uh, because I'm a broadcast engineer and an expert in terms of analyzing, is that audio real? Is it, you know, matrixing, things of that nature? And also evaluating video. I taught nonlinear editing early on uh, at William Patterson University. I spent three years in academia running the broadcast center at, at William in Wayne, New Jersey, uh, and taught as an adjunct professor. So I really have a pretty broad background as well as one that's in many ways focused in media and broadcasting. Enough of me talking. Ask me some questions. <laughs> <laughs> Bruce, uh, thank you very much for that. Uh, you have an amazing bio, absolutely amazing bio. And uh, for another show at some point, I would like to uh, pursue some of those categories because I have a lot of questions I think would be quite uh, interesting for, for my uh, audience. Uh, to to listen to some of your stories about what went on behind the scenes, what what kinds of things you observed, and I'm sure things that went right and things that went wrong. I bet you've got some more stories <laughs> that, uh, that you could do stand up uh, in a in a comedy club and really kill, absolutely kill the group. And I would love to do that sometime. But tonight, here we go. Absolutely, my friend. Absolutely. Now tonight. Um, I'd like to zero in especially on uh, what, what you have observed and what you have learned about the UFO phenomenon uh, on, on, on many different levels, professionally and personally. And um, I'd like to go into that. And also any paranormal, you've mentioned that too, that would be a huge interest. So for this particular show, I'd like to go mm -hmm. into those areas, but you already have an invitation to come back in the new year and get into some of the Thank other you. amazing categories that you that you really have uh, uh, lived lived your life a full life on those areas too. So, but right now let's stick to that. So, you you tell me how do we begin with say any interests you had or any observations you might have had in the category of UFO phenomena? Let's go there. Yeah, let's start back in the beginning, 1975, I head out to New Mexico. Um, I had the opportunity uh, to work as a weekend anchor uh, at night, the late, late news at the CBS affiliate in Roswell. I was in Portales. It was a 96-mile ride, if I remember correctly. And they were paying me like six bucks an hour, but I didn't care back then, uh, you know, to get some time on, on a commercial broadcast news operation was worth it. So I'd rock it down to Roswell from Portales and, uh, you know, about an hour before the newscast. And um, one night after the newscast, uh, tie this all in, 
I was pretty much a workaholic when I was in college. I got my bachelor's degree in, in two and a half years. I was a three-year graduate of high school and very long story, but I was very fortunate that way. I've always been pretty good at taking tests. Evidently, I took the CLEP test and got the, the full load of 30-some credits for that and overload and so on. But that being said, I would run back at 1 a.m. after the news gig in uh, Roswell, and I was on overnight on Friday and Saturday nights at the number the only 100,000-watt FM station in the country at that time, KMTY. So I used to get my dinner, lunch, breakfast, whatever you want to call it real quick, at the uh, Phillips 66 truck stop, the big, huge truck stop in uh, Roswell. That was kind of a junction. Uh, and by the way, Roswell is a big, a big dairy town, uh, milk-producing not so much anymore, but still, it's uh, that's that's other than the airbase, that was its main claim to fame. Uh, and by the way, uh, the late Dr. Edgar Mitchell, the sixth man to walk on the moon and the Apollo 13 uh, command module pilot, uh, grew up just outside of Roswell, ironically. Um, an amazing hmm. man, a wonderful, humble, intelligent man. Oh, absolutely. Man. Oh, my God, you know? absolutely true. Yep. So one night I'm having my meatloaf and potatoes blue light special jamming them down because i got to get on the road and be on the air at Clovis, New Mexico in uh, in about a, two hours. And a guy comes up to me and goes, hey, you're the guy from the news. I said, yeah. Now, remember, I'm a 21-year-old kid. It was a shtick to, you know, CBS had the newest and youngest anchors, a fresh look and all that nonsense. And I'm a 21-year-old kid from New Jersey or thereabouts. And this cowboy, well-dressed, comes up and says, why don't you ever – and I'm quoting him, I'll never forget this, tall, good-looking, well-dressed guy, obviously uh, a well-to-do rancher, or he, at least he appeared that way, uh, full cowboy guard with a Stetson hat and so forth. He said, you know, why don't you guys ever do a story about the flying saucer? Now, they didn't call them UFOs in 76. Um, they crashed out here after the war, and I, you know, I'm like, okay, I got a drunk cowboy here. I said, uh, <laughs> flying Wow. <laughs> flying saucer. I didn't say that. I was like, good boy. Uh, I said, uh, I've never heard of that. He said, well, he said it was all over the news for a couple of days and then they shut everybody up and and nobody could talk about it. And I, and I just, I'll never forget this. I said, they shut everybody up? And this guy instantly went to you know, DEFCON 3. He goes, listen, son. He said, I'm, I'm not here to lecture you. He said, but it was the end of the war. The 509th bomb group was the only nuclear bomb group. You know, we just got done kicking the snot out of the, the Japanese and the, and the Germans, and we were getting ready to go at it with the Russians. If they told us to shut up, we shut up because everybody in this town either worked at Walker or, or at that time Roswell Army Air Base or had a family member that did or somebody they knew it did. So you did the right thing. We just got to finish fighting the war. I said, okay, all right, relax. Uh, he said, so why don't you do a story about that cover-up? And I said, well, I'm not the news producer. I'm not the station manager, but so I don't have enough juice to do that, but it sounds like an interesting story. He said, well, I'll make a deal with you. If I get people to talk on camera, will you agree to do a story? I said, well, I just explained to you I don't have that authority, but you know, I'll certainly run it up the flagpole. So he says, okay, we got a deal. So he walked away, and I said, well, that's the last time I'll see him. About a month and a half later, I'm there having my meatloaf and mashed potatoes again, and bang, his yellow tablet flies down on the on the counter in front of me, and I turn around, and it's the same guy. I said, oh, boy. 
So he said, well, he says, there's 11 people that will talk to you on camera. They may, you may have to disguise their, who they are and their voice, but they'll talk to you. They were either directly or indirectly involved. He said, now you do your part and do the story. I said, well, I'll reiterate our last conversation, sir. I can't guarantee that, but I will pursue it. He said, okay, you got a deal. So I had phone numbers. Out of that, I ended up, and it's a very long story, but out of that, I ended up interviewing a number of people. Now, this was about a year, I guess, before uh, um, Ber- uh, Berliner and, and, and uh, uh, who are the other two guys there? Uh, slipped my mind. Wrote the first books uh, on Roswell. Stanton Freeman showed up with Jesse Marcel sometime later. Um, down in Louisiana and really cracked it open. But uh, Steve, uh, Schmidt and uh, some of the other folks that got it. So I ended up right after that going to Denver to work on my uh, broadcast degree and my FCC licensing. Uh, and so I did not. I wasn't. I did the interviews. I did a number of interviews actually on <laughs> on a cassette recorder because in those days we did not have. Um, remote camera equipment. We were shooting for our primary news in, at the stations. They were all shooting 16 millimeter, but you know, Channel 3 was a PBS station. Our stringers had high eight cameras, and so it was pretty crude. So I ended up with a little, you know, twenty dollar cassette recorder, and I interviewed Frankie Rowe and Glenn Dennis and a lot of the people of you know the Roswell story who were involved in it directly or indirectly. Uh, the crew chief off that B-29, who was the loadmaster, who took the bodies out of out of the hangar and, at uh, at Walker, and uh, actually ferried them over to Fort Worth, and then on to Wright Pat. Um, but I wasn't able to move ahead on doing a documentary because it was in Denver, you know. And I, at that time, I was doing some part-time work at KRMA uh, uh, in Denver and a couple radio stations, but I was full-time. So. I missed the opportunity to break the Roswell story is the bottom line. <laughs> so you talk about a missed opportunity. But it did light the fires with me um, in terms of UFOs. And uh, I was in the Civil Air Patrol. Uh, I was hanging out at Cannon Air Force Base in Clovis on a regular basis. And I actually had the most incredible uh, encounter in my life uh, in January of 19. 19- 77, a very well-documented uh, UFO uh, event, two days, two nights, I should say, over Cannon Air Force Base. Uh, they scrambled the F-111s. That was an F-111 base, and uh, I watched it the second night. I took hundreds of pictures with 1,600-speed film. I was working as a stringer on the side for uh, Associated Press and had a, a, a Nikon FG, I believe it was, with a 400-millimeter lens, and I shot a ton of film that night up on the roof of the Hotel Clovis, and I actually processed the film and got a couple pictures of these things. Um, so that's another long story. It's well documented. You can look it up. I actually went public with that about 15 years ago, finally. Uh, I never I never promoted it because it was on all the stations and so forth. It was very well documented. Is there a way to uh, look at it at, say, YouTube, or is there any place like that that yes. I could look for uh, that? Let me see if I can pull up that link, and I will share it with you to share with your uh, your subscribers. Uh, sure. If you look sure. up I'll Clovis, put it out there later, yeah. Yeah, I just think for the folks listening, if they want to look it up if they have their, com- their computer. Oh, okay, great. Uh, handy. Yeah, yeah uh, I believe if you just search in Google 
Clovis, New Mexico UFO event, um, 1977. I believe my story and transcript of my interview with Brian Vike uh, from the Vike Report, which was the first time I publicly spoke about this, and it was many years later he talked me into going on Jeff Rentz's show and talking about it. Um, and interestingly, out of that, uh, two nights later in the middle of the night on a cell phone that nobody but my family had the phone number to, I got a call at 2 in the morning, an unidentified man suggesting that I not discuss that incident any further. It was very bizarre. Um, and wow. it got to the point where, I, yeah, it's like, hey, who are you? What is, how'd you get this number? What do you call me in the middle of the night type of thing? And it was very cryptic and very B-movie uh, style approach. And I said, you know, is this a national security issue? Who are you? Uh, give me a reason not to talk about it. Well, we just think it would be in your best interest. They said, what are you talking about? And then they started talking wow. about my family. And they were obviously surveilling me. And that kind of got my attention. They knew what my sons were doing. They knew what I was doing. And and then the guy brought up the same, the exact same phraseology that Frankie Rowe, whose father was the uh, in the fire department at Roswell and was one of the first on the scene from the incident of the crash, um, uh, west of the Brazos uh, property uh, back in 47 and when they came and debriefed her as, as a 10 year or 11 year old child the, the air police guys in their khaki uniforms and their white spats stood there you know banging a billy club in their hand with their little white helmets on and told her you know people disappear in the desert all the time and they never even find their bones you wouldn't want that to happen to you and your parents would you so this didn't happen and uh, she told me this in 1976 I believe it was and she was a a mature woman and was in tears telling me this story well the point of this that uh, discussion is that this is what this started on me. He says, you know, people have accidents all the time. It'd be a shame if you lose a loved one. Uh, but that's Whoa. Wow. Oh, my God. Me? Said, really you, said you guys that. watching wow. B movies? I said, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. You're threatening me? He said, we're not. Uh, he said, we just think it'd be a bit. So uh, I called Brian, and uh, I told him about it. He says, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to sing like a canary. That's the only thing that will protect me. And I, I went back on Jeff's show and told him the story. Um, interesting. Good for you, man. Of, Good for you to do that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I said, And I told the guy, I said, look, oh, yeah, look I'm, I'm in the reserves. You, you know, all you have to do is tell me it's national security, and I'll shut up. But you don't have to say anything more than that. And he wouldn't say that. I said, well, guess what? You know what? Uh, I don't frighten too easily. Um there's, this goes on and on and on. I don't want to go into too much detail. We can talk a whole uh, show about that. Um, but uh, it, it, as it turns out, um, I'm still having trouble getting my DD-214 from the Coast Guard. Interesting, I'm not in the system. So, uh, and, and if you know uh, uh, Jim Penniston and, and John Burroughs in the 1980 Rendlesham incident, um, you'll yeah, know yeah. that... Uh, that the funny their records all disappeared too and John's medical records and stuff and he finally had to get uh, um, who was the senator who was the uh, um, from Arizona uh, McCain actually interceded to get his medical records and this is this is the standard ploy they pull they pull your records or your or your military 
pension or your benefits and stuff, and that's how they get people to act wow. yes. And I know that for a fact. So it even gets more bizarre than that. And frankly, the point of all this is it it it's because I visualize I visually watch these things for several hours over a period of two nights. Um, and the wing commander was a good friend of mine, and he told me off the record because I used to talk to all the guys. I was on overnight radio at, at KMTY, and the guys on the the duty crews, and and the guys would call me for for uh, you know for requests to play music. Um, so he said, "Look, we don't. It'll take me six months of paperwork to to, to uh, document scrambling those F-111s. They're not the fastest thing in the sky by any means. They're fighter bombers, but uh, you know they made us look like we we're backing up and do it. They're doing 90 degree turns at 3,000 miles an hour and hovering <laughs> right, right. and so forth. You know the standard wow. shtick you hear. Um, interestingly, all the power went out on the flight line during that incident at Cannon, really? and about." Oh, about a week later, yeah, this is you can, and I believe I was out there for a uh, an alumni award about at the fifty ninety seven, and these they brought these uh, light towers like you would see in a rail yard, these huge, you know, erector set towers with searchlights on them. They brought them down from a sack base, I was told, and put them up on the flight line at Cannon, and they were still down there in ninety seven because you could see them from Portales. That's how bright they were. Um, but the interesting thing is that, very long story, of flying back from San Francisco from doing a job, oh, I would say 10 years after I went live on this, so this would have been around 2000, and I always pick up a book to read on the plane, I get about three pages into it and fall asleep, so that's my way of putting myself <laughs> to sleep. Because I'm always trying mm-hmm. to read and research. I'm an incessant researcher, and I bought a book by, and I have it here by Fawcett, and it's the paper documentation trail of UFOs. And so I turn to this page, and I'll get you the title of that. Um, and here's a page of a, of, of a declassified it. Uh, through Freedom of Information Act, a report from Cannon Air Force Base to the National Military uh, Command Center in D.C. describing this event in detail. UFOs over the flight line, so on and so forth. So here is the smoking gun. I have the photos that I took and I processed, so there is a chain of custody there. And here is the smoking gun of a government document corroborating that. Now, ironically, that was in 77. 25 years later, I get a call out of the blue from somebody at, ironically, a CBS affiliate in Albuquerque. They're doing a 25-year story on this thing, and they want some comments mm-hmm. about it. <coughs> Forgive me. Excuse me. Um, and there had been subsequent other uh, sightings in and around that area. It's a pretty active area. Um, so I gave him an interview and so on. But So that just reinforces the, the fact that it was a viable story, um, and that was a game changer for me because, I, you know, having been a pilot have, and then doing aviation documentaries, I spoke, we did Air New Zealand and the South Pacific, the island hopper. I've been at every island in the South Pacific, um, Australia and South Africa and uh, the Middle East, the Far East, um, Alaska many times, uh, Northwest. You get around, my friend. You certainly get around. Well, Absolutely. not so much anymore. But but the and that and that's not to brag, but it's to say I've talked to so many pilots 
because back in those days, uh, my partner was because he was an airline pilot, he was able to get us in the cockpit, and I had crew passes and so on. You know, you could go and talk to these guys, and behind the scenes, the stories that they told uh, are now being brought to the mainstream. For example, Lieutenant Commander Fravor and the Tic Tacs, and the fact that this is now being brought on mainstream, where in the past you'd lose your job and you never did a report. Now the Navy is requiring reports. Um, So the point is, Let's go back to the big picture, and I think that folks that really aren't intensely into this on a regular basis, and this is what I, I, I give lectures to pilots. I haven't done so here in the last couple of years, but to pilots associations, and believe me, that's a tough bunch to talk to. If you go to the New Jersey Pilots Association or you know a CAP uh, or professional pilots and AT, uh, ATPA uh, Association of Transport Pilots. Usually I get a, a free, uh, you know, aluminum foil hat on the podium, and you know th- these guys are, are less than cordial about calling you a nut job. Well, not so much anymore. And um, you know, I, I, I tell these these fellas, uh, you know, I show I show the 1991 press club footage that uh, Stephen Greer did with uh, some of our mutual oh, yeah. friends, George Filers on there, and uh, you know, a, a lot of people that that I know personally. And I said, look, if you can if you can still dismiss this as all being bunkum, and that I'm a whack job at the end of this, I'll buy you and whoever you want, you know, dinner at the best restaurant in the tri-state area. <laughs> well, I've lectured to probably three or over three thousand pilots, and I've never bought anybody dinner yet. And I've had guys come up to me. I mean, we had the chief chief uh, test pilot for Boeing. We had uh, Top Gun school graduates. We had uh, you know guys with. 30,000 hours and say, Lee, now you really made, you really ruined my day because I can't really in good conscience make fun of this stuff anymore like I used to. And also a lot of guys mm-hmm. have said, look, I've seen stuff. That I don't want to give you the details of my name and who I was flying for, but, yeah, I've seen stuff that's not, not real. So the point I make, and, let, and let's step back for a minute if I may, um, there's a couple aspects of this because I've worked a lot in the paranormal uh, field, and, and it was really quite crude and on a number of the shows, and I always tell people in my lectures, um, if you give this as any area of interest more than a cursory view and five seconds are listening to sound bites and, you know, and the X-Files music, you will find out that the volume of credible, undisputable evidence is overwhelming. And, Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I, when I taught documentary production uh, and long-form uh, programming, documentary programming, I just tell, tell my students, look, it's like building a wall. There's a, a place, in, especially in the paranormal field, for anecdotal ev- evidence, which is not substantiated. Somebody of credible nature who's, you know, got their head screwed on straight, who, who has no interest in this, says, look, I just, I'm sitting here watching a Civil War soldier walk through the wall. There's no door there. I know what I saw. I wasn't dreaming. I'm not drinking. That's part of building the case, the scientific evidence, the data, um, the historical evidence. That, If you get enough bricks, it starts to look like a wall. And, and, and if you get to the point where our judicial system, as flawed as it is, um, would say there's preponderance of evidence, then maybe there's something to it that we just don't have all the nuts and bolts facts for. And I tell people that because... 
where you can't buy everything on the Internet anymore, you could buy everything that was in print. Thank you, Mr. Hearst and, and a lot of other organizations, including the few <laughs> newspapers that exist. The fact of the yep. matter is that when you have people relating the same incident, the same details, the minutia, thousands and thousands of times all over the world. I don't care if it's paranormal or whether it has to do with UFOs. And this brings up an interesting sidelight I'd, I'd like you to comment on and see if you agree. I have, sure. because I've crossed these barriers, and, you know, there's a lot of silos in this. There's a lot There's a lot of factions. There's the nuts and bolts people in UFOs. There's the interdimensional and so on and so forth. But there's also a... a there has in the past been a historical line of demarcation between anybody talking about paranormal and and UFOs. And I have seen in the last couple of years people crossing those boundaries and saying, you know, maybe all this stuff is interconnected in some form or fashion. I don't know how to characterize that or quantify it. But, you know, the thought has occurred to me in the last six months of doing research, and I have done a lot of research on with some people that are remarkable. I, I will recommend a gentleman by the name of Jim Carton. Uh, he's one of the most amazing Renaissance men I've ever known, uh, who wrote a book hmm. called Pilgrims and Strangers on the Earth, who, that looks into the religious writings of various cultures, the Hindus. Of course, we know they have have chapters on the Vimanas uh, <laughs> and, and the flying... Uh, the flying apparatus and the wars that took place and the visitors, um, you know, their deity, which is shown with 15 arms and blue skin, uh, is 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 reported to be a real, actual, factual uh, depiction of this deity from another galaxy or another place who actually has blue skin. So... You know, the, the Hopi Indians, for example, and, and uh, if you talk to their elders, the Kachina dolls you can buy in the gift shops, the souvenirs, uh, are, are actually depictions of their space brothers that came and, and taught their people how to live sustainably on the Earth. Well, if that doesn't look like that rounded head like a bullet doesn't look like some kind of a spacesuit, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm misinterpreting what I see. Um, you look in the Yucatan and... and um, the Aztec temples where they got a guy who's clearly sitting in, a, in the seat on a rocket ship. There's flames coming out of the back of it, and he's got a spacesuit on. I mean, it goes on and on and on. <clears throat> I have come to a possible, and, and, and I'm really breaking this concept on this show. I think there's a possibility, and, and to be fair, I think I have heard Ellie Marzulli mention this. I think there's a possibility, as much as I discounted uh, the whole Bigfoot phenomenon years ago. I, I'm not so I'm not so sure that it should all be discounted at this point. And I think there's a possibility, as one of the theories, and it, and I would like to look into it. And I started to that that Bigfoot may in fact be the Nephilim of old uh, mentioned in the Bible. Now they have there's a fascinating area of study. There's over 2,000 newspaper articles from North America going back to Revolutionary War period, uh, which show pictures and tell in great deal, great detail these giant skeletons found in burial mounds all over North America. Uh, interestingly, the bulk of them, and there's a very long story behind why this took place, were sent to the Smithsonian, and to this day, the Smithsonian acts like and says empirically, we have we have no skeletons. I don't know what you're talking about, even though 
their archaeologists in the field, their diaries have been published that say, hey, you know, this thing was approximately 16 feet tall. It had a skull the size of a Volkswagen, you know, and there's pictures of them, and they're not. <laughs> oh, you know, yeah. There have been, I've like, there was them. one in New York State that was obviously hoaxed, and I tell people to be cautious. Don't buy everything you, you see. Even when I give a lecture, I said, don't believe it because it's coming from me, but go do some research. Dig in, you know. One of Absolutely. the problems we have, I I taught as an adjunct professor, but I also taught, believe it or not, for a number of years, K-12 through as a substitute in West Jersey in some of these Blue Ribbon Schools of Excellence. And one of the things I, I noted, and I, I hammered a friend of mine who was a school superintendent there in, in the Clinton area, as I said, look, you know, you don't teach critical thinking. You don't teach students. You don't teach young people. How do, how do, how do you discern whether a story is credible, whether a, a concept is credible. How do you research it? How do you come to a conclusion? Or do you take a soundbite off CNN or MSNBC or Fox News, and, or do you listen to what your dad says and that's gospel? Do you have the ability? And you don't teach them those skill sets. So it's very easy to be manipulated, and it's very easy to have your view of life constructed by people that have an axe to grind and, you know, a pretty face or a good-looking woman reading somebody else's script off a prompter, which is what today's mm-hmm. quote-unquote journalism is degraded to. I ramble on, but the point I'm making is I think there's a possibility that a theory may hold some water that the Nephilim may be actually what we're seeing with Bigfoot. You know, the dimensions are somewhat similar, uh, whether they're interdimensional or whatever. And there's a lot of UFO sightings associated with Bigfoot sightings uh, as far as, t- you know, compression of time frame at similar times. Enough of that. Let let me answer some of your questions. Lead me in the direction you'd like me to go in, please. Well, first of all, I, I just, you're on target. You are so on target, Bruce. It is such a pleasure to hear what, what you're saying on, on such a good level and uh, you really examine, you, you, you study, you get all the facts, uh, you don't jump to any conclusions. Uh, that, that's just so key, and I just want to salute you for that. And one of my questions oh, I'd just like to briefly ask you is, when, when a person sees a UFO or a paranormal experience for the first time, experience that or see it or hear it, whatever it is, it changes your life. And I just want to oh. ask you, on a personal level, how, how did you deal with that when you saw, or, or in your case, saw something visual that was like, that this is something very, very different, very unique? How does that make you feel? How does it change you? I have to tell you, I, I, this, I, it's amazing that you should mention that, and I, and I applaud you for that, because this is central to one of the topics I always talk about. When, when you're view of the world, our existence, how you fit, humanity, so on, bumps up against something so completely out of, out of character of what we know, we believe, we accept. Um, and I'll talk about my impression. I tell people there's a number of ways human beings will deal with this. Either A, they'll dismiss it and block it out of their mind and like, yeah, I'm imagining that, and not look any further and not accept the fact that maybe they did it, They did experience that, they did witness that, they did hear that. Or, and I've told people this, and I've had I can't hundreds of people over the years come back to me and I've run into or write me or email me back in the days of snail mail and say, you were right. 
I had this experience, and it's forever changed. I can't put that genie back in the bottle. It's changed how I view life. It has opened me to the scary possibility that it's not what we all believed it was, in some form or fashion. And it is a cathartic in many people, and I don't tell people what to think. Jeez, you deal with it however you want. But you process that, and you can't, if you're a sentient person who is open-minded, you cannot, dis- you cannot erase that part of the memory banks. It's there. And I've had so many people say, you know, I had, I had a, an airline pilot. He flew B-29s in World War II. He was a TWA pilot. He said, look, hey, I got 21,000 hours in the cockpit. I've spent a lot of time up there. He said, I know what, what me and my crew saw. And he said, I don't give a damn whether you like it or not. I don't, you can laugh at me all you want. But he said, I know I saw it. It was there. It, this situation, it tracked us over the South Pacific. We didn't make it up. We weren't all on drugs. We weren't smelling exhaust from a leaky exhaust in the garage. He said, and it happened, and I need to get it on the books before I take a dirt nap because somebody should be aware of this. So that's, that's the way professionals, you know, I often say to people, let's look at the human aspect of this area of investigation or this area of interest. Do you really, in the real world, think that a career state trooper is going to put his career on the line, his credibility on the line with his colleagues or professionally by making up a story of seeing UFOs in Ohio? Do you think that a, that a pilot's going to take himself out of a – and we're talking big money difference to get stuck in a, a desk. They'll pull you out of the cockpit, as they did with the Japan Airlines 747 cargo um, over, over, uh, over the Northwest ter- Territories. Uh, he was JAL. This is well-documented a case. Well, when he reported, they pulled him off the flight. You know, he was no longer in the, in the, uh, on the flight deck. He was down pushing a desk for the rest of his career. So do you think that a professional person that is not a nutcase is going to have his kids laughed at in school, go on camera? These people run like crazy from this kind of publicity. So, you know, the, the – the concept that somebody's looking for publicity. Nobody's making money off of this stuff. Even you and I aren't making any money. I don't get paid for these television shows. I don't want to get paid. But I think the story needs to be told. You're not getting paid for this for this podcast. Nobody's making money. We we pursue it because it's fascinating. It's a game changer. It changes everything about what we're doing as electro-biochemical gobs of water and goo that are that are on this planet, this experience. And I think that looking into, believe it or not, the world religions, whether it's the Hindu religion or the, or the Buddhists or Christianity or some of the Native American religions that have a tradition that we are not the only things in the planet and what we see is not the only dimensional existence that we just don't know, we don't understand. Um, let me Let me, if I may another hypothesis and and i think from a very objective standpoint you cannot argue that this is not a possibility when you read the old testament the new testament you talk you hear about the nephilim you read about the nephilim the watchers if you look at the way in the vulgate bible the the greek bible it was written and you understand before the translation the 
concept to me seems very logical that things like RH negative factor, the missing link, uh, the nonlinear nature of, of progression of wisdom, the Egyptian, uh, you know, the abilities of Egypt coming out of nowhere basically in a short period of time and in, in the life of the, of the earth, um, that it is very possible and plausible to at least consider the fact that we were colonized on this planet. And it's no more or less ridiculous than us talking about colonizing Mars. I think that just in the, in the aggregate, in the macro sense, that's a reasonable hypothesis to look at what we see. And, and the other thing that, I, that goes along with the comprehensive nature of, um, of what we're talking about here is, I think we have to look outside our own silo. Is there a connection? is the multiverse part of the answer here. Um, so I think we're moving ahead that some of these silos are being broken down. But I think the concept, if you talk about the watchers and read the verses about that, if you, talk, if you look at the vimanas and the diagrams of what the craft look like, um, if you look at the Hopi's traditions and so forth, I think there's voluminous... Um, documentation, although it may be disparate and not directly connected, um, leads us to to move in a in a more enlightened direction about all of these things. And I'll tell you the other thing as a technician, I'll get my techie hat on now. Some of the new <laughs> devices that have been have been in the paranormal field that have been built, whether they're laser light, uh, motion detectors, and is I'm a broadcaster. I have a first-class license. This whole thing with the Frank's box or the ghost box, i got to tell you, I think that's pretty interesting how the answers to questions can come up from scanning broadcast frequencies. These, I've looked into some of these boxes. They don't have a chip in there that records what you're talking about discreetly and then plays you back words that may make sense. And I've seen direct answers way too specific to be random and possible just by chance. Ask me some questions because we're probably running out of time here. We're, we're running out wow, of time. We're, I think I put on my producer hat, but we have like uh, five minutes left. Okay. Thank you very much, Hercules. Uh, before we go on to our listeners uh, this evening, um, if you have a question or a comment uh, for either me or uh, Bruce, uh, I'm going to welcome that, and I'm going to give you my email address again. If it's for Bruce, I'll pass it on to him, or it's for me, I'll do my best to answer it. So my email address once more is N-I-C-K-N-Y-N-Y-1, and that's the numeral one, not O-N-E, at gmail.com. Again, Nick, N-Y-N-Y-1, at gmail.com. Uh, Bruce, um, how cutting edge, um, how amazing this subject is just so intriguing. I know that you feel that deeply. So do I. Uh, the members of Disclosure Network New York, we are all family. We are on board with this incredible exploration of, of truth. And I think you'll agree with me that you've got to be uh, courageous. I'll use the word courageous to, to say, look at Let's, t let's look deeply into this. Let's really investigate this. Let's go for truth. And wherever that truth falls, we've got we to accept it. Once we know it's for true, 
We've got to say, okay, the old ideas I've had, the things that people taught me, uh, government-wise, uh, education-wise, uh, you have to put that aside because when the facts are there and proven, you have to move along. You have to move up to the new reality of what's out there. And I think you'd agree with that. What a fascinating subject. Do you have in the next minute, I hate to put this into time, but in the next minute or so, what would you like to leave to, uh, tonight well, for our listeners? What, what would you just like to say to them? I would suggest, and you're right, it's, it, uh, it ha- there's a price, to, and certainly even worse in the past, the price is to be paid for pursuing this in any public or semi-public forum, uh, and, and it, it takes its toll because of the ridicule that you, you, but that's human nature. I would suggest that if you find any of these areas that you're interested in, and you really start digging into it at, when you have time, you, it, to me, it's so unbelievably amazing to even contemplate the evidence that's out there in some of the theories that I don't have enough time in a day to be able to, to investigate to the extent I want to. There's, there, it's fascinating, whether it's over-unity, uh, whether it's Nikola Tesla, who is one of, my, one of the areas I've researched incredibly, to, if it's... If it's the de-glock and, and uh, anti-gravitical um, research and the documentation. Um, there is so much going on that's fascinating and interesting and educational in the broadest sense. And I would encourage people, look for various, you know, be, be an, an objective and a, I would say, a skeptical but open-minded investigator to the extent you're interested in it and you will find there's a wealth of fascinating information out there on so many topics that uh, to me it just keeps me excited and engaged and I hope that it does I hope that this time that the listeners have invested in listening to me yap is has been worth it because the sun doesn't rise and set on me by any means and I'm the first to tell people that <laughs> Bruce uh, a very heartfelt thanks to you for sharing your insights and your life and your perceptions with us this evening on my podcast. You are already, my friend, uh, invited uh, for the new year. And we'll put some dates up and see if you can do that. But I'm so looking forward to more interviews with you. You're an amazing guy. Much love to you. And this is Nick Curdo for Disclosure Network New York, uh, wishing you all an enlightened journey as you connect the dots to seek truth. Till next time, keep informed. Stay safe and be very, very kind to one another, especially now. Goodbye for now. Good luck. And hopefully we'll see you in next month. Take care. Good night. Uh, Thanks again, Nick. Thanks again, Bruce. An excellent show. I look forward to uh, part two. Thanks to everybody who joined us from home, whether you clicked on a link and found yourself here, whether you called in, you're in our queue, or whether you're going to be joining us later on on demand. Until next time, this is us wishing you joyous journeys and amazing adventures. And in the few seconds we have left, I'm going to pray If You Can Dream by Virginia Ackley. Or not. (laughs) All right. Here it is, If You Can Dream. Thanks again, guys. Okay.
Oh, yeah. 